The following resource is from lmpc.org and we're delighted to provide it freely to all. If you feel led to give towards the ministry of Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church, we welcome you to do so at lmpc.org give. A reading from Deuteronomy chapter 5 verses 1, 6, and 7. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. God said, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Great to see all of you this morning. I'm Brian Salter, one of the pastors here. I look forward to meeting you. We are returning to our series in Deuteronomy. If you remember, we have chosen to hear the word of God from Deuteronomy because of our emphasis on renewal. In these next years, this is a book about covenant renewal. This is a book, you may remember, of preaching. You just heard Moses summon the people. He's preaching now his second sermon in Deuteronomy, and he starts with the Ten Commandments. You see, the Ten Commandments were given at Mount Sinai after the people had been rescued from Egypt, and now you need to know in Deuteronomy they are standing on the edge of promise, on the edge of the land. They're about to go in and inherit God's promises, and Moses calls them to renew the covenant. And an aspect of renewal that is vital is a renewal to the law summarized in the Ten Commandments. If we at Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church are going to taste renewal, we must hear this law of God and respond accordingly with our hearts by faith in Jesus. So over the next 10 weeks, we will be looking at the Ten Commandments. And the law is, yes, it is a mirror. It will show you who you really are but it's also a picture of who God wants to make us. And it's also a window where we can look out and see the world and go into the world to bring God's way to bear. So let's pray God would open our hearts as we just sang. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning having heard your command, you shall have no other gods before me. And our idols are many. For everyone in this room, we place all sorts of things ahead of you. We've confessed that. Again, we tell you, we understand this about our hearts. We long for change. So we pray that the preaching of this command would bring change in our lives. We need it. I need it. I ask that you would do that by your spirit. We pray this in your name. Amen. The covenant Lord using Moses rescued his people and now he commands his redeemed, you shall have no other gods before me. Very important to remember that before the Lord brought the law to Israel, he brought Israel to himself. His grace and saving redemption precedes his giving of the law. 
The law is not merely a code of conduct. It's a relational covenant of how we are to engage with our Redeemer and Creator. The first command, like all of them, they're the maker's kind instructions. They're the maker's good design. And you and I know that any departure from the maker's instructions leads to serious and even eternal ruin. Perhaps you, like me, learned this at Christmas, that following the instructions of the designer is paramount. My youngest son received an awesome air-powered airplane. It's really cool. You pump it up with air, and then you turn the propeller, and it moves rapidly, twisting and turning just through the, the air. But there were two things in the instructions that I ignored when I wanted to play with it. It said that you should use this toy outside where there's lots of space and that you should not over pump the air chamber, which of course I did because I wanted more speed, right? And I also didn't go outside. So when I released the propeller and threw it in the living room, that overinflated airplane hit the floor and exploded a very loud explosion, and I promptly ordered my son a replacement. <laughs> when you refuse to attend to the maker's instructions, it can be lethal to our lives. Our Lord commands us, no other gods. These are clear and worthy instructions for us if we are to enjoy life as he designed it. As Augustine said, our hearts you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. But oh, how quickly we turn to other places for rest only to be restless. John Calvin said, every one of us from his mother's womb is a master craftsman of idols. Our hearts are an idol making factory. So let's consider the first command. We'll see it's the greatest command and it's the most broken commandment. First, it's the greatest commandment. We are to rightly commanded to exclusively worship the Lord. It's a worthy command and it's a worthy command from God based on who he is and what he's done. In Deuteronomy 4.35, it says to you, it was shown that you might know the Lord is God and there is no other besides him. He is solely worthy of worship. There's no other. Now for an unworthy object to demand praise, that is repulsive, sinful and arrogant. If I were to come to you this morning and say, I bring you a good word, worship me. You should all leave. Why? Because it is sinful and repulsive for an unworthy object to demand praise. But it is not for one who is worthy. And there is only one worthy of such praise and only one that can make such a command without being selfish or sinful. And it is the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It is a right command. It's right based on who he is. It's right based on what he has done for them. Yahweh, the Lord, had done so much for his people. He rightfully demands exclusive loyalty. 
He had rescued them from the slavery and bondage of Egypt only because the blood covered them over the door. No, nothing in them. The blood, the powerful work, the the mighty parting of the Red Sea. He had done that for them and guess what? He had not done that for any other people. They were his special covenant people. He had showed loyalty and faithfulness to them and it is right that he would command no other gods before me. And Jesus in Matthew 22 would reiterate this command. When asked which is the greatest command in the law, Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And that is the great and first commandment. Absolute, exclusive, wholehearted worship is the first command from God to a people that seek to be renewed. Now, brief clarification, when God says before me, he's not trying to tell us how he, how he is always to be at the top of the rankings among the many gods. Just, in other words, you can have all the gods you want, just make sure I'm number one. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying to non-Israelites, uh, you can worship your gods, but my people need to worship me. I need to be number one among all gods. No, He's demanding exclusive worship from every created being. And actually, the scripture goes on to say that the gods, even here referred, you shall have no other gods before me, they're actually not even real. They don't even exist. 1 Corinthians 8, 4 says an idol has no real existence. Isaiah calls them non-entities in chapter 2, verse 8. Elijah and Isaiah mock them for they are powerless and lifeless. There's no God, as the scripture says, but one. And so you may ask, if God is the only God, then why does he speak of other gods as if they're real? Good question. It's because the gods he speaks of are false gods can have a real power over our hearts and lives. Are they real? Yes and no. They have no existence, but we chase them and they have power. John, 1 John 5, 21 ends that little letter from the eyewitness disciple saying to us who know Jesus, dear children, Guard yourselves from idols. This is not something relegated to the past with cultic symbols of poles and fire. This is right here among the people who even name the name of Jesus Christ. It is a right command. The greatest command is a right command and it's a necessary command. I want you to consider why it was given to them consider where they've been, consider where they're going. They've been in Egypt, the Egyptians in terms of worship of other gods, they were unmatched. They worshiped the gods of fields and rivers and light and darkness and sun and storm. But as they've been rescued and brought to Sinai, the Lord makes clear, I am to be the one and only God. And in that time and in that era, in that ancient world, that command was without precedent. No other God, anybody that worshiped any other thing ever said, exclusively me. This is a remarkable command given 
as they come out of Egypt. And it's a remarkable command is given as they go into Canaan because consider when they settle in that land, they're going to become farmers. They're going to assume an agricultural life. And do you know the way of the land there is to believe in these fertility gods, that you will not have a bountiful harvest if you do not obey the fertility gods. And that involved all sorts of sinful and scandalous behavior. And God is telling them on the edge of the land, you will trust me. I will bring you a bountiful harvest, not out of your false worship and chasing of idols, but out of your allegiance to me. And so this is a right command. It's a necessary command, not only for them, but for us. We live also in a very polytheistic world, meaning a world of many gods. A world that says, you can believe whatever you want as long as you don't impose that on anybody else but yourself. This command flies in the face of that. You shall have no other gods before me. It's not only the greatest commandment, it's the most broken commandment. Broken by us. We perpetually pursue idols that never satisfy. Listen to Martin Luther. We never break the other commandments without breaking the first. Before you break any of the other commandments, it is because you have broken the first. You see, the first commandment is the root of all the others because here's the reality of our heart and our behavior. Whatever matters most to us will determine our behavior and our emotions. Whatever matters most to us will determine our behavior and our emotions. That's what we call an idol. Theologians and pastors have defined idolatry through the church's history. Simply put, an idol is something we cannot live without. We must have it. And because we believe we must have it, it drives us to break rules we once honored. It drives us to even hurt others and even ourselves in order to get it. An idol is simply a God substitute. Romans 1 speaks of the deadly exchange when they exchanged the worship of the creator for created things. Created things make terrible gods. Good things make terrible gods. Only God is ultimate with exclusive rights to our hearts. So an idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart, anything that absorbs your imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give, you seek that thing to give you what only God can give you, that's an idol. It is whatever is in the center of your heart and life. And I want you to know this. Idolatry is not a new notion propagated by some therapeutic age or recent theologians. You survey the Bible and you will see that the doctrine of idolatry in the human heart goes all across the pages of Scripture. Consider the very giving of this law 
You shall have no other gods before me. And the redeemed are building an idol. That's our hearts. Consider the prophets, Jeremiah 2. Says, yes, on every high hill and under every green tree, the, the picture of cultic idols, you have bowed down. And they're not always objects. Listen to this. Habakkuk 1, 11 says, then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. Not a, not a pole or a sacrifice or a fire or their strength is their God. Isaiah speaks often of the idolatry of the heart. Consider the philosopher and poet in Ecclesiastes. I've seen everything that's done under the sun and behold, all is vanity. It's all a chasing after the wind. And he goes through it the entire book. Knowledge, pleasure, work, wisdom, relationships, you chase it and it alone as if those things are ultimate and it is like chasing the wind. He says, vain, vain, vain. And he ends the book and says, the end of the matter is this, love God and keep his commands. Consider the New Testament when Jesus says, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And yet we are perpetual idol chasers. Philippians says of a people that their stomach is their God. First Thessalonians 1, 9 through 10, listen to this. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. The testimony of the Thessalonians is they're turning from idols to worship the one true God. And as 1 John says again, dear little children, keep yourselves from idols. Listen, this is not some therapeutic gospel. This is the first commandment. And it's the most broken commandment. You and I, idol-making factories, we perpetually, tragically, horrifically make idols out of almost anything. Everyday thought, common things can get a person in its grasp. The heart can become addicted to about anything in your home. From the attic to the basement to the closet to the pantry to the yards to the computer to the fridge to your clothes to your hobbies. Just your home can grab your heart. When we don't follow the maker's instructions of you shall have no other gods before me. Remember, it leads to ruin, explosions, things that don't taste like life. So the question this morning is not whether or not you have idols. I hope that's been clearly established. The question is, do you know them? Can you discern them? If you want to discern your idols, look at your most uncontrollable emotions. You know how hard that is for me this week after Monday night when I had so much joy watching my bulldogs? <laughs> the exuberance? Okay, I got to follow that. Oh, no. 
Follow your most uncontrollable emotions. Follow your guilt. Follow your shame. Follow your anger. Follow your despair. Follow your anxiety. Follow your fear. All those things are like the check engine light on your car. Ignore it to your own ruin. When it comes on, look underneath. When those things fire in our lives, it is God saying, I want you to look at your heart. This is the most broken commandment. Those things are signs to something in the heart. For instance, your guilt and your shame is often because there's something back there in the past that you thought you had to have and you lost it. You didn't get it. When you're mired in that, you see that's your idol. Consider anger and despair. It means in the very present moment, there's something I think I have to have and it's being blocked and I'm gonna get it. Or there's no way I will get it and I'm in despair. Or there's exuberance because I got it and then it doesn't taste. Think about the future, your, your anxiety. Your fear is related to something in the future that you think you might not get, that you think you have to have. And follow that and you'll find your idols. You'll find the idols of peace, comfort, security, control, relationships, reputation. You'll find the idols. The question is what happens when you find them? What's the cure? The cure for our idolatrous hearts, before I go there, I want to speak about the expulsive power of a new affection. Before we consider the only cure, I'd like for us to consider further our heart's condition in light of this commandment. Please hear this statement. This is a profound statement. It was a life-changing statement for me when I heard it from Thomas Chalmers in The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. Idols are never simply removed. They're always replaced. You never just remove an idol. You always replace it. It's one of the central insights of Chalmers' sermon that the constitution of our nature is that nature and our heart's nature hates a vacuum. It will not be empty. It will find something to worship. You cannot just remove an idol. You always replace it. And so that quote in your bulletin, the part of that is such as the grasping tendency of the human heart, it must have something to lay hold of. And if rested away without the substitution of another something in its place would leave a void and a vacancy as painful to the mind as hunger is to the natural system. Simply put, removal of an idol without replacement of something else is impossible for the human heart. It's impossible. You will replace something when you remove something you're worshiping. Chalmers says in that sermon, even the strongest resolve is not enough to dislodge an affection, leaving a void. I remember back when one of my sons was one year old. I remember it clear as day. We just brought him a cold, clean, sippy cup of milk. A one-year-old's dream, right? He began to guzzle that milk until we turned the corner with a plate of red, cold, fresh strawberries, and he threw the milk across the room. It's a picture of us. 
a greater affection. I'll get rid of this because I got to have that. That's the nature of the human heart. The only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. No one sins out of duty. We all sin out of delight and pleasure. We all worship idols because this, listen to this. We perceive that the worship of that idol will be more pleasant or maybe less painful than godliness, than worshiping God. It's always about the heart's affections. So listen, you only dismantle idols with the power of a superior, worthy, true pleasure, the one we were made for, our maker and our redeemer. You only dismantle idols when you begin to find God not as useful, but as beautiful. When you begin to find God as more delightful, more sufficient, more worthy, more beautiful than any of our former affections. When that happens, when you begin to see God like that, you'll throw the milk across the room because you want him. It's the expulsive power of that greater affection. And we'll never throw down our idols unless we are more ravished by the ultimate one, God. And we become ravished with the ultimate one, God, by seeing Jesus. Jesus, I want you to see this morning, is our idol-crushing king. I was so helped this week by an article I read by Nick Badsick from Ligonier. It caused me to think about how God's leaders in the past dealt with idols. Follow this through to Jesus with me. When Moses found the people worshiping the golden calf, he took the calf, he burned it, he ground it into powder, and then he scattered it on the water and made Israel drink it. The burning, the crushing, and the grinding represented God's judgments against idolatry. The act of throwing it into the brook symbolized removal of it from God's people and God's presence, and it became a sort of paradigm for removing idolatry among God's people. Stay with me. Think about the kings. Asa, 1 Kings 15, cuts down an idol. What does he do? He burns it and throws it into the Kidron brook. Kidron, I saw it this last summer. It was a valley. It lays east of Jerusalem. It divides Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. And there's this brook, this river that flows right there. That's where he threw it. Josiah, when he found the gods, he burned it. He pulverized it. And where did he throw it? Into the Kidron brook. Hezekiah's reign, when they found idols in the temple, they took the debris from the temple, they cleansed it, they burned it, they ground it down, and where did they throw it? Into the Kidron Brook. Here's the problem. Moses and none of the kings could purge the hearts of the people. 
There was this promise of a new covenant that God said, I'm gonna give you a new heart. I'm gonna give you a new spirit when the Messiah comes. And he came and he's the idol crushing king. And listen to me. He made his way to Calvary. And don't let this be lost on you in John 18, one. He crossed the brook Kidron where all the ground up idolatry had been thrown as a sign of judgment. He crossed that brook. The godly kings of Judah had burnt and destroyed the idols they found there and threw them into the brook. And Christ now made as sin for us that he might abolish and take it away began his passion at that same brook. That's where he prayed Oh, if there be another way in that garden, and right there, right across the brook, because he knew he would be crushed for our iniquities. He would be pulverized by the wrath of God for our idolatries. He knew he would go down into the depth. Why? For you, he loves you. He willingly and gladly took the penalty of our idolatry in his body on the tree and we receive his love and sacrifice and that is the cure for idolatrous hearts. Our idolatrous sins have not been thrown into the Kidron brook. No, they are washed in his blood and thrown into the depths of the sea. Are you throwing away your milk yet? Your idols, your sins, because you see, I want that. I want that kind of king, an idol-crushing king, worthy of my worship, the expulsive power of a new affection that'll say, throw away reputation, power, throw away control, throw away relationships as ultimate, throw away success, throw away the chase and be caught in the affection of Jesus, your idol-crushing king, who was crushed for your iniquities, and that's what you deserved. That's what I deserved. There's no other solution. There's no other cure for your heart. There's no other way to keep this command except Jesus taking over and ravishing our hearts. Please see idolatry like this. Idolatry is spiritual treason that betrays our true king. That statement should break our hearts, cause us to remove the idols in repentance. And knowing our idol-crushing king should woo our hearts and replace with the greater affection. That's the only way to keep the greatest commandment. Let's pray. Father, if we all could read on each other's foreheads right now, our idols, we would be so embarrassed. The chase of our hearts, the emptiness, the lack of satisfaction, 
Just like my son saw the strawberries enter and was ravished, may we see Jesus today crushed for our iniquities because he loves us. Help us to throw away, throw off constantly our perpetual idolatry and find our rest in you, Jesus. Because then our hearts ravished by you will change our behavior. And that's called renewal. Do this, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.